0: And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Us Baptists may need some practice with that part. So, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God thanks be to him. Let's pray. So we do thank you Father for being a God that speaks to us. You've given us your word and so help us now to open our eyes to see wonderful things in it and give us hearts to receive what you might have for us today. Amen. All right so today we return to the book of Jonah. We were here last week and we're finding out that although there's only four short chapters in the book of Jonah this book uh, packs quite a punch. I'd strongly encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and listen to Larry's sermon, or maybe even if you were here last week, it would still be worth listening to again because uh, it was really helpful, very challenging, and set us up perfectly for the remainder of the book. Uh, Today, we come to the part of the story that's probably the most well-known and the least well-known all at the, the same time. You know, if you were to ask somebody, so do you know about the story of Jonah, they would probably respond, or you might even respond, you know, summarize Jonah for me. Yeah, the guy that gets swallowed by a whale, right? Uh, But the rest of the chapter that we just heard read is often overlooked. It's kind of different from the rest of the book. Uh, It's not a continuation of the narrative per se. It's like poetry. It's like a song. It's a prayer that Jonah prays while he's in the belly of this great fish. So, Let's go ahead for just a second and talk about the fish, okay? Uh, because to be fair, a man swallowed whole by a fish and somehow living to tell the whale of a tell is indeed fascinating and a bit, uh, admittedly a bit fantastical, okay? Uh, I remember as a teenager like just thinking about or trying to figure out how could someone survive in the belly of a fish? You know, was this a whale? Was it a shark? Was it a whale shark? (laughs) That was my top vote at the time, a whale shark. But, you know, um, how fantastic or far-fetched this part of the story sounds to you reveals a lot about you. It reveals a lot about your background, your upbringing, your culture, and probably how many times you watched Pinocchio. You know, if, if, if like many of us, you grew up and were educated in the West, where miracles and supernatural events are somewhat suspect, then this part of the story you know, definitely messes with you a, a little bit. To many modern people, the story of a man being swallowed by a fish, it just sounds so outlandish that it's either dismissed outright or people fixate on the fish uh, such that they miss the ocean for the seaweed, right? But if you're from a culture where the spiritual realm is recognized just as ready, readily as the physical, then this part is not such a hard thing to swallow. And I'm sorry, I'm done with the, <laughs> done with the fish jokes, I promise. That was the last one. I could spout off more, but I'm going <laughs> to stop. So, The point is, what you already believe and assume about the world and God and miracles will affect how you feel about this story. But let's remember... Christianity is centered around the truth that God came into the world as a man and lived and died for us and then was raised again from the dead. Okay, so we believe that God intervenes from time to time. And when you think about this, you know, like the miracle difficulty of maintaining Jonah's oxygen levels inside a fish stomach, it's not like a level 1,000 miracle challenge for God, right? So in the author of the story, really, he hardly misses a beat when the the fish comes on the scene. He doesn't emphasize it. He doesn't spend any time describing it. He doesn't play it up in any way. It just kind of gets like an honorable mention. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Moving on, next thing, you know. Uh, Thomas Carlyle has a fascinating little book of short poems about Jonah, one of which reads like this: I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama Inside Jonah. Told you they were short poems. <laughs> I like short poems. But you know, this chapter has so much to show us about ourselves. And more importantly, about God and his mercy and what that does inside of us. You know, what do we do when life throws us in the deep end or we've thrown ourselves in the deep end and God seems a million miles away? How do you pray when you are at rock bottom? There's a lot to glean here. But I'm going to focus on three things about God's mercy and how it interacts with Jonah and, by extension, how it interacts with us. So first, we'll look at where God's mercy finds Jonah. Second, how it affects him. And then third, how it eclipses him. So where mercy finds him, how it affects him, and how it eclipses him. So where mercy finds him. Uh, After Jonah is tossed overboard by the reluctant sailors, if you remember from the first chapter, you might expect the story to end, (laughs) you know. And Jonah drowned. The end. You know, but, and I'm sure that's probably what the sailors expected to happen. Probably what Jonah expected to happen. But, plot twist, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, God had arranged other plans for Jonah. And his pursuit of Jonah in this book is nothing short of masterful. He is always two steps ahead of Jonah, ready to take him by the hand or by the scruff of the neck if necessary. And this is both, uh, I think to us, comforting and a little frightening, but mostly comforting to me because I know that I am prone to wonder And a God who doesn't give up on his people when they run from him, but chases them down, is always ahead of them, and knows just how to get their attention is a beautiful thing, really. Uh, But Jonah has to learn the hard way, the words of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. But you know, the even more surprising part of this plot twist is that the fish was not just sent as like a slap on the wrist or to get Jonah's attention, the fish was God's way of rescuing Jonah from certain death in the sea. Okay, the fish is God's mercy to Jonah. You heard his prayer uh, in the scripture reading earlier, and perhaps you notice, uh, he prays as if God has already delivered him, which is kind of a strange thing to pray from the belly of a fish, right? He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of the grave I cried, and you heard my voice. This is all in past tense, which has made some scholars question like whether this prayer even really belongs at this point in the book you know maybe this was supposed to come after verse 10 when the fish has spit him back out but the passage is is pretty clear where's Jonah when he prays he prays from the belly of the fish and so this means that his prayer is a reflection of the mercy that God has already had on him and is even having even now you see him reflecting on this in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So Jonah's praying all this where? <laughs> Still in the fish. He's realized that the fish is not God giving up on him. The fish was God meeting him at the very end, at his absolute lowest point. And in, you know, in my imagination as I read this story, I just wonder, like, when does this hit Jonah When does he have this epiphany? Uh, Like, what point after fleeing from Israel, being caught in a raging storm, thrown out of the boat into the storm, and then nearly drowning, and at the last moment, this giant sea creature snatches you up, and three days later, you find yourself not dead. Like, I am, holy cow, I'm still alive. When does it hit him? God, you just aren't going to give up on me, are you? You see, God has orchestrated all this, the storm, the casting of lots of the sailors, to get Jonah right where he needs him to be. God's mercy meets Jonah when he is at the very bottom. And yet, this kind of mercy is what C.S. Lewis called a severe mercy. You know, the storm, the water b and that he stays in inside the fish, like... These are not what we would hashtag as blessed or God's mercies. Um, Anderson Cooper did an interview with comedian Stephen Colbert on grief and loss after Anderson Cooper's mother died. And both of these men have suffered terrible tragedies in their lives. Um, Anderson Cooper lost his father at a young age and then later lost his brother to suicide. Stephen Colbert's father and two of his brothers were killed in an airplane crash when he was 10 years old and apparently Cooper and Colbert like they corresponded about this and Stephen Colbert shared about how his faith affected the way he dealt with tragedy which then led to to this interview. It's a really it's a really interesting and genuine moving conversation about grief. I don't agree with like everything that Stephen Colbert says in it. It is Stephen Colbert after all but there's a really tender moment in the interview where Colbert is pressed on what he previously said about faith in the midst of tragedy. And almost unbelievably, he gives like a short, direct answer, which I really like. Let's see if we can watch this clip of the short clip of the interview. You told an interviewer uh, that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Um, I remember. You, exactly. went on, you went on to say, uh, what, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Yes. Hmm. You told an interviewer... Uh, <laughs> what punishments of God are not gifts? How could that be? How can someone actually believe that? and learn to love the thing that they most wish had not happened. Marshall Segal from Desiring God, he wrote in response to this interview, the lavish love of God for us often hurts in this life. Sometimes the love we need most is the love we want least. The love feels so harsh, so blunt, so unpleasant in the moment, we don't even recognize it as love. That's because we can't see everything that God sees. Behind the real pain that he allows is an even more real love for those whom he sent his son to die. Would we ever run to Jesus if we never experienced suffering and loss? Now I want to be clear and I want to be careful here. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all suffering is to be understood as a chastisement for our own sin or a mark of God's displeasure upon our lives. I mean, think about the poor sailors in Jonah chapter 1. You know, their calamity was Jonah's fault, not theirs. But our trials can always be used and indeed sometimes must be used by God to heal us. For his people, they are always a mark of his love. Uh, One commentator put it this way, The belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. Jonah was basically in the worst place that he could find himself. You know, in this massive storm, tossed overboard, far from home. And here's the worst part. It was all his fault. It was, it was all his fault. <laughs> and yet this is where God's mercy met him. So no matter where you find yourself today, even if you're sitting in a mess of your own making, God's mercy will meet you there Even if you failed him and run a thousand miles in the opposite direction, he is only ever one prayer, (laughs) one prayer away. So this is where God's mercy finds Jonah and will find us too at the very bottom. But once it finds him, how does it affect him? How does God's mercy affect him? Well, as Jonah recognizes this severe mercy from God and as he reflects on it, he breaks and for the first time in the book, even though he's had other opportunities along the way, for the first time in the book, Jonah prays. And this is like the one thing that Jonah gets right in the whole book, okay? He prays. And you might say, of course he prays. He is stuck in the digestive tract of a fish. You know, I guess whatever it takes, right? I mean, what does it take to get you to pray? To really Pray. You know, I hope it doesn't take hitting rock bottom, but I suppose there's no prayer like prayer from the depths. A deep prayer is often forged under deep pressure and deep pain. But Jonah's prayer is not what you would expect either, right? It's not, it's probably not what I would have prayed. <laughs> it's not a foxhole, like, just get me out of here and I'll do the Nineveh thing, okay? You know, Jonah's prayer is a beautiful tapestry of thanksgiving it's actually woven together from passages of the hebrew scriptures the psalms jonah prays the psalms here he pulls from psalm 5 psalm 18 psalm 31 psalm 34 psalm 42 psalm 50 psalm 69 psalm 120 if you have a good study bible maybe maybe they'll give you those you're like bro i can't write that down Um, but he weaves all these psalms together in his prayer From memory, I would suppose. You know, I assume he's not pulling out his scroll in the fish. Like, okay, Psalm 69, let me see. Like, this is all in in his heart. And so if there's a point of application to be drawn from this, I think it would be this. Read and read and read and get to know the Psalms. You may find one day that you have need of them. And you will have need of them on hand and in your heart. The Psalms teach us to pray when we would not know what to pray. The Psalms give us the words when we would not have any words. The Psalms give voice to our greatest joys and our deepest sorrows. The Psalms engage our feelings beautifully while still leading us beyond our feelings to teach us to pray truth to lead us into truth about God that we may otherwise on our own never get around to praying, if we're honest. Eugene Peterson comments on this. He says, If we are willfully ignorant of the Psalms, we're not inherently excluded from praying, but we will have to hack our way through formidable territory by trial and error with inferior tools. If we dismiss the Psalms, preferring a more up-to-date and less demanding school of prayer, we will not be without grace, but we will miss the center where Christ worked his praying. So do you need a prayer coach? Go to the Psalms. Because as Jonah composes his prayer, we see the Psalms giving voice to his experience while also guiding him into truth, truth about God. And it's here in this prayer that we begin to see why Jonah is so affected by God's mercy. like Why is he he so affected in this prayer about God's treatment of him? And I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this insight who also got it from uh, J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God. But Keller and Packer point out that if you want to have a real, sensible appreciation of God's mercy, like if God's mercy is gonna be more to you than just an abstract concept that we talk about in church, If it's going to affect you personally, emotionally, then there are some, what Packer calls, background truths about grace and mercy that you must understand. You know, you can sing amazing grace, but do you really think that it is? And here's these background truths that appear in Jonah's prayer. And they enable someone to grow in their understanding and appreciation of God's mercy. So I'll give them to you right here. The first is that Jonah sensed that he deserved God's judgment. Jonah sensed that he deserved God's judgment. I mean, look how he describes what happened to him. Look in verse 3. He says, For you cast me into the deep. Your waves, your billows passed over me. Verse 4 I'm driven away from your sight. And who did the driving? Jonah recognizes his guilt before God and that God has a right to banish him under the waves and just leave him right there. And, you know, as modern people, we tend to have a hard time with this. You know, most of us like the idea of a kind, benevolent, divine being, but like a God who has these holy standards and deals out judgment and punishment, you know, thanks but no thanks. But Jonah recognizes this and he owns up to it. And so must we if we're actually going to understand mercy. Because you see, mercy implies a transgression. If there's no real offense, like if God's not really bothered by sin, then there's no mercy involved at all. It's just kind of a vague, oozy sentimentality. If we throw out any notion of judgment, we miss the very heart of mercy. You know, in fact, the more holy and righteous that you understand God to be, the more you will feel, wow, what it means for him to have mercy. And then secondly, Jonah knew that he could not have saved himself. He knew that he could not have saved himself. Uh, See how helpless he describes the situation. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Now uh, the message paraphrases it colorfully. "The ocean gripped me by the throat. The ancient abyss grabbed me and held me tight." And then verse six, "I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever." Verse seven: "My life was fainting away." I mean, drowning, that's such a pointed picture of helplessness. Uh, so I grew up near the ocean. And I've had a couple of instances where I began to feel this type of helplessness and panic in the water. Um, As a young boy, somewhere around 8 or 10, I was caught in a rip current while we were on vacation. And I remember my mom yelling to me from the shore. I was trying to look at her. She knew I was having trouble and was getting pulled out. Telling me not to fight it, you know, like the thing you're not supposed to do with the rip current. But like, try to catch a wave, ride it in, or come around this way. And, you know, I could not hear a word she was saying. Uh, I didn't know what to do. And even if I had, I don't think 10-year-old toothpicks really make the greatest human surfboards. So I swam and swam as hard as I could to catch a wave. But I was getting further and further away from the shore, and I was running out of strength. Like, I had no no idea what I was going to do. And this sense of panic, I remember the feeling, began to set in. But then all of a sudden... I felt this hand grab my wrist and sling me forward, and I felt my mom pull me out of a wave and then swim ahead to catch up with me, grab my wrist again, sling me ahead again, again and again, until we got to where we could stand up. And I don't know how she did that. You know, maybe it's like just God-given mama bear adrenaline that sets in when your kids are in trouble, or maybe my mom is just a boss, you know, which (laughs) she kind of is. But, that was, that was not a good feeling. I was helpless. I could not save myself. And this is the exact picture of spiritual reality that you must understand if you're going to appreciate God's mercy. The old hymn puts it so well. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And then the third thing that Jonah realizes is that God intervened, and this is the only reason why he does not perish. To put it more succinctly, Jonah realizes salvation comes from God alone. Salvation comes from God alone. He prays in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And then verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Again, the Message Bible renders this, those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from their only true love. In other words, there's no steadfast love to be found no mercy, no salvation in any other place, any other God or God's substitute. And then most famously in verse 10, Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord. Literally, he just says salvation is of God because Jonah knows that salvation, rescue, is from God alone. You don't save you partly and God save you partly. Salvation is accomplished by God alone And is found nowhere else. And without feeling the weight of these three, what we've called, background truths, our deserving of judgment, our inability to save ourselves, and God is the sole accomplisher of our salvation, then God's mercy will seem to you far less captivating. Now here is one way that this chapter connects to our theme for this year, like engaging our neighbors with compassion and action. Now, I wish I could tell you that Jonah's new new appreciation of God's mercy radically changed him and prepared him to be the kindest, most Ninevite-loving prophet there was out there. But careful readers of the book are likely to ask, how can you say that Jonah began to understand or appreciate God's mercy? Like, look at him in the next chapters. He's still hard-hearted and spiteful towards the Ninevites. He's angry when God forgives them and he just got forgiven and yeah man that's a bit frustrating isn't it It shouldn't be that way you know it's not right that someone should receive god's great mercy and then be unwilling to see god extend that same mercy to someone else you see jonah is like an ogre you know or like an onion he has layers And if you haven't seen Shrek, you should watch it and think about Jonah (laughs) and think about yourself. He has layers because Jonah is just like us. Man, I wish I could tell you that as I receive fresh experiences of God's undeserved mercy towards me, I just automatically extend that same mercy to others. But I have layers, layers of selfishness, layers of unforgiveness, And so I need God's mercy to keep going down, down, deeper and deeper into those layers. If we're going to engage the people around us with compassion, we need the compassion of God for us to sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. What I'm saying is don't be satisfied with your current comprehension of God's love and mercy. Pray that it would go deeper because you probably still have some layers too thankfully God still isn't done with Jonah you know he's peeling back the layers of Jonah's heart he's exposing and removing the hateful sinful parts and thankfully he's still working on us you know we are in process but it's a process that God is committed to and if the book of Jonah should teach us anything about God it's that he is not a quitter and thanks be to God And in Jonah's case, uh, even though he had no idea at the time, God was using his life to write an even grander story of mercy and grace. God's mercy goes far beyond this story. It eclipses Jonah. His mercy eclipses him. Because in the New Testament, Jesus makes an interesting reference to Jonah's experience. Uh, Jesus has been healing people and casting out demons. And so the Israelite religious leaders, they come to him asking for like more proof, more signs. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, "'Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you.' But he answered them, "'An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, "'but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah.'" For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what is Jesus getting at? Like, What does he mean by you won't get any sign but the sign of Jonah. Is so he going to get swallowed by a fish? You know, what's going to happen? Well, think, think for a minute. Think about a sign. A sign is meant to be a pointer, a director to something or someplace else. The sign's not the destination. It's the marker, the label of the destination. So Jesus says that Jonah and his experience in the great fish and then subsequent preaching in Nineveh is like a pointer to him and to another sign, and that that is the only sign or proof that these guys can expect. He says a really similar thing in John chapter 2, which may help here it again clarify from a different angle. Uh, After the famous incident where Jesus clears out all the money changers and religious extortioners from the temple, uh, we find in John chapter 2, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what's he getting at? Well, when Jesus is asked for a sign or a proof or a pointer to his validity as the son of God, he always seems to redirect people back to the same thing. His death And resurrection from the dead. And if the Ninevites believed at the less than stellar preaching from a less than stellar prophet, then surely these Israelites should believe now that the true messenger from God is here. Because Jesus was not going to be validated by regurgitation from a fish, but resurrection from the dead. And so, if you are wondering, speaking to anyone here who really is curious, if they can know that all the claims that Christ makes about himself and that Christians say about Jesus, that he really is like the son of God, the savior of the world, if you struggle with that, if you're curious about that, let me encourage you to start by examining the evidence for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's the sign that he gave. But as you do, be challenged by the faith of the Ninevites, which we'll see next week, and the unbelief of the Israelites of Jesus' day. So like when I was in college, uh, I watched a debate between two well-known scholars. One was an atheist and one was a Christian. And at some point in the debate, uh, the Christian scholar asked the atheist scholar what it would take for him to believe in God. And his answer fascinated me. i never forget it. He said, in my bedroom closet, there's a safe. And in that safe, there is a number etched on the back wall of that safe that I have memorized. If someone can tell me the number in the safe, I'll believe. And of course, at the time watching the debate, I'm like, man, how awesome would it be if the Christian guy just like told him the number right now? You know, can you believe everybody in this room would believe? <laughs> but you know, looking back, I'm not sure that that's how it would have gone even if he could have given him the number. I imagine he would have said something like, what in the world were you doing in my closet? For some, like the religious Pharisees, there's just never enough evidence, never enough signs to convince them. But Jesus does offer us a pointer for those willing to look, his death and resurrection. This is the sign of Jonah. Because in many ways, Jesus' fate would be the same as Jonah's only far, far worse. Jonah was in the belly of the fish, but the Son of God would be in the heart of the earth, the deepest and darkest grave of them all. He was fully swept under the waves of God's judgment. I can't explain it to you any better than commentator Brian Estelle. He says, whatever the inestimable grief that Jonah feels at this point, there is another who entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything ever imagined by human beings, total abandonment by God. Jonah got himself in trouble. Christ, on the other hand, accepted the wrath of God, not to atone for his own shortcomings, but to pay the penalty for sins not his own. The expression of grief voiced by the strained human poem of Jonah finds its ultimate echo in Christ's cry from the cross. Jesus bore God's wrath. Jonah experienced rescue from death itself, but for Christ, there was to be no immediate rescue and no respite. This was a virtual descent into hell for our Savior. This was separation from God himself and what Christ had to experience. The Apostle Paul caught the great mystery when he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus saw in Jonah's ordeal a dim shadow of what he would endure. And this should help us understand perhaps some of the most profound and important lessons of this chapter of the book. How can you know? How can you be sure that on the day of your deepest distress, that God really will hear you and help you when you are at the bottom answer because if Jesus already took the ultimate grave for you you can know that even God's severest mercies are in truth still his mercies he does not hate you as Paul says in Romans 8 he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all how will he also not give us all things with him you see, Jesus was at the bottom for you so you could know that he is at the bottom with you even now. The Heidelberg Catechism captures this beautifully in its questions and answers on the Apostles' Creed. It says, why does the creed add, he descended into hell? Answer, to assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. And because Jesus took a far worse grave than us, he knows what it's like to be at rock bottom. He sympathizes with our pain and our hurt. Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord says this to his people, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over with you. They will not sweep over you. You see, God is at the bottom with you in your pain. And most importantly, Jesus does not stay in the grave. He does not just have sympathy. He has victory. And because Jesus didn't stay in the grave, neither will his people. His resurrection is our assurance that our distress, our tragedy, indeed, even our death is not the last chapter of the story. Jonah doesn't stay in the fish, Christ does not stay in the grave, and God's people will not stay in the ground. God is saving the greatest plot twists for last. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, get this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so we gather today to remember and to celebrate Christ's victory over death by his own death and resurrection. We, too, gather around a sign, a pointer to the broken body of Christ crushed for us, a pointer to the innocent blood of Christ poured out for us. For on the night before he was to go to the cross, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. The table at North Wake is open to all people who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and are walking in fellowship with him. But if you're, if you're not at this point a, a Christian, or if you are a Christian, but you know that you have run a thousand miles away from God, let me encourage you today. The table is a symbol but Jesus is the substance of what you need. Today, you can take that one step back to God and know his embrace. So perhaps uh, during this time, as the church takes communion, maybe you just wanna pray the prayer of Jonah. Call out to God in your distress and know that he will answer you. Maybe it's been a long, long time since you've prayed. You'd like to pray with somebody. Uh, Come find me. I'll be down here praying myself and I'd be glad to pray with you. So if you're taking communion today, uh, just as a reminder, use the, the middle and then far aisles to approach and then these two other aisles to return to your seats. So let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Great God, we give you thanks for this remarkable story, how it exposes our need for you and reminds us of your great mercy, that you have provided everything we need when we could do nothing to save ourselves. You know what it's like to be broken because you were broken for us. So as we partake of this bread and this cup, work your love even deeper into the layers of our hearts. Give us compassion for another because we have received it from you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.